All right, welcome back to the Listener's Commentary on the New Testament. The Listener's Commentary is a crowd-funded Bible teaching effort made possible by the generosity of people just like you. So thanks a ton if you're one of those who supports this work and makes the Listener's Commentary possible. And just in case you missed the previous announcement, the Listener's Commentary Study Hub is on the verge of being generally available. And the Study Hub is the place where I bring together in one location all sorts of different uh, resources so that you can study the Bible for yourself, so that you can learn it, live it, and share it with others. And so I'll let you know as soon as that's available, but we're right on the cusp of that in the next few days. So, all right, in this recording, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. And as always, let's begin by setting this in context. Peter has begun really a new section where he's addressing how Christians can and should live in society where their beliefs and their lifestyle makes them misfits. And where as a result of that, they're viewed with suspicion, they're spoken about negatively, uh, they're treated poorly or unfairly or at times even harshly. And what Peter says to them is that you need to live such good lives among those around you that they will glorify God on the day he visits, both to judge the evildoers and vindicate his people. And he said that uh, being do doers of good in their community is God's will for them. And that was the header in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And then what Peter begins to do is address various social relationships that the original readers might find themselves in. And so he's called them to submit to and honor civic authorities. Well, now he's going to address another specific group of Jesus followers, namely servants. This is what he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. He says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are harsh. So this call to live in a certain way is directed specifically to servants. There are several things that are fascinating about this. The first is this. Peter uses a different word for servant here than the normal word for servant or slave in the New Testament. The normal word in the New Testament is doulos, which just means slave. The word used here is more specific. It's oiketai, and it refers to a house servant. The other fascinating feature out of this is that Peter, like other New Testament authors, actually addresses servants. In fact, New Testament authors in general, Peter himself does it as well, they address plenty of other people who were traditionally, by the culture of that day, viewed as being in the subordinate role. And the reason this is significant is because those people, like servants, rarely ever got mentioned in these kinds of instructions. Typically, when somebody wrote instructions, what we now call household codes, where they addressed various members of the household, they only addressed the master and told him how to deal with those people who were in the subordinate roles like servants, but not the New Testament. In the New Testament, they give instructions to the servants and to others who are in these kinds of roles. And this is a subtle but important difference that speaks really to the dignity and the value of all persons, regardless of their station in life. And so Peter addresses house servants here in chapter 2, verse 18 and following. And he tells them, the way it's translated here, 
be subject with all respect. Be subject to your masters with all respect. I, I really don't know why translators sometimes do this. The word translated be subject is really the same word that's translated in verse 13 as submit yourselves. It's the same idea, but be subject sounds sterner or harsher or something than submit yourselves. And I don't know why they don't just translate it consistently. So this is really just the idea of submit. Submit yourselves, or it's a participle here, servants, submitting yourselves to your masters with all respect. Now, this doesn't eliminate the possibility of gaining their freedom when that's permissible, when that's allowed. In fact, in the Roman Empire, the freeing of a slave or even a slave acquiring his freedom was actually fairly common. It was referred to as manumission, and uh, it, it was a fairly common and widespread practice. To be a slave didn't necessarily mean you were a slave for your entire life. Slaves could actually earn money by their freedom, or there were other ways they could be released or be given their freedom from their masters. And so Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, actually advised slaves to remain in the station in life that they're in unless, he says, they could actually gain their freedom, purchase their freedom, 1 Corinthians 7, 21. But generally speaking, what Peter is saying here and what the other New Testament authors say to servants and slaves is, this is how you should relate to your master and carry out your work. You should do it by submitting yourself to their authority and you should submit yourself to their authority with all respect. Now, let me take a brief aside to talk about uh, slavery in the Roman Empire because it's really important. We don't know for sure the exact number of slaves in the empire, but estimates put it at about 20 to 25 percent of the population empire-wide at any given time would have been slaves. So a really huge percentage of the population. And in some cities, it was noticeably more uh, than that. In fact, Rome actually was wrestling with should they require slaves to wear a specific type of robe or not, and they kind of decided, well, no, that would let them know how many there are, then they might revolt, right? So in some cities, there was noticeably a higher percentage of slaves than others. One of the important things to realize about Greco-Roman slavery, slavery in the Roman Empire, was it wasn't based on race. Um, it was sort of an equal opportunity venture. You could be born into it. You could be sold into it. You could be indebted into it. They didn't have chapter 11, so this could be a way to work off your debt. You could become a slave by virtue of prisoner of war. There just were a variety of ways that someone could find themselves being a servant or a slave. And the working situation of slaves varied widely. We're talking widely. Like many uh, servants or slaves served like long-term employees. They got paid for their work, and they worked alongside freed persons. In fact, sometimes they were better off than freed persons because they knew they would be taken care of. They would have food and a place to sleep by virtue of being a servant. And so in some situations, they were almost better off than a freed person. Uh, slaves and servants were known to be physicians. They could be a household manager over all the other servants in the household or over whole departments within the household. These ones over the house servants, these ones over the field servants, right? Like they could have huge responsibilities. They could manage workers on the estates. They could be pedagogues, which basically meant they were like super nannies that took care of the kids and uh, cared for all of the, the schooling and the tutoring and all the things basically required to take care of the kids. 
Uh, you can actually learn more about that in the recording on Galatians chapter 3, where that imagery is used for how the law functioned. Uh, they could be readers. They could run businesses for their masters. Some were wage-earning clerks, right? Like Their experience varied widely, and it could be quite good, depending on their master, or it could be pretty miserable and unfortunate. Uh, depending on their master. And certainly the worst of all slaves were those who were slaves of the state, oftentimes prisoners of war, who were forced into hard labor and things like that. Now, in this case, Peter is specifically addressing house servants, and he instructs them to submit themselves under the authority of their master with all respect, regardless of how their master treats them. He, notice he says that, do this not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are harsh. So you arrange yourself under their authority if they're good and gentle, they're forbearing, right? And they're kind and gracious to you, or if they're harsh. And the word harsh actually means corrupt or twisted or perverted. So for those that are just hard to deal with, they're hard to get along with, they're twisted, they're perverted, they're difficult people, submit to them as well. Or if they're good people, submit to them as well. And then he goes on and says, that this is actually honoring to God when you do this. Notice verse 19. It says, for this finds favor. That is, this is grace, literally. This is grace towards God. If, for the sake of conscience towards God, a person endures grief when suffering unjustly. Whether, notice how broad that state in verse 19. Whether a servant or any other kind of person, it doesn't really matter. He's applying it to servants here. But generally speaking, when, when a person endures grief when suffering unjustly, Peter says, this is actually a means of grace before God. Now, Peter wants to emphasize this point, that their responsibility is to do good and right, regardless of how they're treated. So this is what he then goes on to say in verse 20. He says, for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure with patience? Like, is there any favor, any grace, any credit to you if you do wrong and then you suffer the consequences of the wrong that you endure that? Like, great, but that's not really that, that honorable of a thing. But, verse 20, the second half, if you do what is right, that's our phrase, being a doer of good again. Like, if you do what is good and right and then you suffer for it and patiently endure it, this finds favor with God that there is special grace, special favor with God for enduring injustice like this. And notice the kind of injustice we're talking about. We're addressing house servants in this specific case, and they're doing what is good and right. They're working hard, and if they're treated badly and poorly, Peter says, guess what? God sees, God notices, and there's extra grace and favor with God for enduring when this happens. And so whatever the situation is, Peter's taking a general truth, applying it to servants, whatever the situation is. If you endure injustice patiently uh, when you're doing what is good and honorable before God, this finds favor with God. Why? Well, Peter's going to go on and say, why? Well, because it's like Jesus. Peter's going to give the example of Jesus and this example, the example of Jesus, literally stands at the center of this whole section that began in 2.11, goes into chapter 3. It really stands at the center of this section about doing good in relationship to unbelievers. And so here's the example of Jesus. He says, verse 21, For you have been called for this purpose, 
because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you would follow in his steps. So you've been called for this purpose. What purpose? Well, the purpose to do good and to do good and endure it, even if you're somehow mistreated. Keep doing good. That's the purpose you've been called to, to be a person and people who are doers of good in relationship to the broader society at large. That's the purpose God called you for. And this is the pattern of Jesus. He says, notice, because Christ also did this. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. That is leaving you a pattern so that you would follow in his steps, so that you would imitate him. And remember, this is addressed to servants. Servants who were rarely ever even addressed when civic and household instructions like this were given. But in Christ, those servants have enough value and honor and dignity to be spoken to. Those servants have enough uh, capacity and dignity to be called upon to choose the good and to do the good. Not only that, those servants are the very ones who Christ suffered for and left an example for. And all of this speaks to how Jesus and his followers elevated the lowly and treated them with honor and respect. So servants are being treated with greater dignity than anywhere else in the Greco-Roman world and being called to choose to do what is good and right regardless of how they're treated uh, because Jesus did this for them. Then, in what follows, Peter develops the example of Jesus they are to follow. He kind of fleshes this out and draws out the example of Jesus that, that they and we should imitate. And the way he does it is by using the words of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is one of the uh, servant songs, the suffering servant passages in the book of Isaiah. It's probably the most well-known one because it's the most like Christ-centered in the sense it's really obvious how it connects to what the, the work of Jesus the Messiah did for us. And so Peter takes the words of Isaiah 53 and then applies the suffering of Jesus as described there to the servants and their situation. And so before I read what Peter says, I think it would be helpful to have Isaiah 53 in our mind and in our ears. And so let me read Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 9, so you can have this language before you as you listen to what Peter says. So here's Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 9. However, it was our sickness that he himself bore and our pains that he carried. Yet we ourselves assumed that he had been afflicted, struck down by God, and humiliated. He was pierced for our offenses. He was crushed for our wrongdoings. The punishment for our well-being was laid upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the wrongdoing of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the wrongdoing of my people to whom the blow was due. And his grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. 
And so that's Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 9. And what Peter does is basically take phrases and language from this section of Isaiah 53 and weave that into what he says next as he really provides this beautiful picture of Jesus' example of unjust suffering, even though he had done good and though it was right, as a way to encourage and strengthen the resolve of the servants and really anyone else that Peter's writing to, to continue to do what's good in their context. The way that Peter does this, if you like the details, is traditionally called a midrash. It's a typical Jewish way of teaching where you're going to take a passage of scripture and you're going to expound it and explore it and interpret it for the sake of your context. And that's what Peter does here. So, 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 22 says, He who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. That was the last little bit that we heard there in Isaiah 53. This is Isaiah 53, 9 which the translation we read translated in Isaiah because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. And so Peter begins immediately to pull from Isaiah 53 to draw us as the reader back into that context. And so we need to have that in mind. That's why we took the time to read it. The point is that Jesus hadn't done anything wrong to deserve the treatment that he received. It was unjust, unfair. He was somebody who wasn't suffering because he had done wrong. He was somebody who had done good. Peter goes on in verse 23 and says, And while being abusively insulted, he did not insult in return. While suffering, he did not threaten, but he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. Hopefully, again, hear some of the the imagery and language from Isaiah 53 there, like Isaiah 53, 7, that emphasizes he did not open his mouth, right? He didn't insult in return. He didn't threaten in return, right? Um, Instead, he entrusted himself to God, the righteous judge. This is the pattern. When there is injustice and when we're suffering unfairly, we don't need to threaten back, fight back, insult back, right? We entrust ourselves to the righteous judge. He'll sort it out and he'll make things right. And then Peter continues applying the words of Isaiah 53 to their situation. And he basically says that like, the actions of these unjust people didn't just go to threats and ridicule and reviling. It actually brought about Jesus' death. And so verse 24, and he, speaking of Jesus, he himself brought our sins in his body, up on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you were healed. The first thing I want to say about this is that phrase, brought our sins in his bodies up on the cross. It's just a really weird and awkward translation. In an earlier version of this translation, the New American Standard, it simply said he bore, he carried. That's the idea, like brought up our sins in his body. Just really awkward translation. And so I just think it's more clear to say that he bore or carried or took on himself our sins on the cross. That's what Peter is saying here. And so it's pointing towards Jesus and that he, his unjust suffering, God actually used it for good and brought good out of it. And so even though it's painful and even though it's unjust and unfair, God is so powerful and has such the capacity that he can take unjust suffering and bring good out of it. That's part of Jesus' example for us. And notice what he says, that he bore our sins in his body on the cross so that, purpose or result, so that we might die to sin 
and live for righteousness. This was the ultimate aim of Jesus' death, not just to forgive our sins, but to liberate us from the power of sin so that we could die to it and now live for what is right and what is good and what is true. And so we have died to sin and we now can live for righteousness. And then Peter says, by his wounds you were healed, which again is, is directly from Isaiah 53, in this case, Isaiah 53, 5. And when we recognize that that's where it comes from, we realize that verse 24 here in 1 Peter 2 is in a lot of ways Peter's summary of Isaiah 53, 5. So Isaiah 53, 5 says, He was pierced for our offenses. He was crushed for our wrongdoings. The punishment for our well-being was laid upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. And then Peter turns in verse 25, again, echoing the language of Isaiah 53, and he says, For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. And so now, after applying Isaiah 53, 5 to them and to their situation, he continues with Isaiah 53, 6, and this idea of straying like sheep. But notice, their, their straying years are over, and they've now returned to the shepherd and the guardian of their souls. That is, the shepherd and their guardian of their lives. And guardian is probably significant in view of the fact that they're at the mercy of their masters. But ultimately, they're guarded by Jesus. Ultimately, their fate is in the hands of the good shepherd who's the one who guards their existence, guard their lives, and thus they are protected and cared for by him. Now, let's end this section by just reflecting on the pattern of Jesus for our lives here. The pattern for suffering is Christ. And that pattern is for the servants that Peter writes to, but really for any Christian who experiences injustice. When we experience injustice, we can stare at Jesus on the cross. We can look at what he experienced and realize he experienced great injustice. He was lynched by people who, uh, and authority figures, who used their power in unjust ways, that he had an illegal, unjust trial, and he went to death that he didn't deserve for a crime he didn't commit, and God used that to bring good to the world. And, and so we, we can imitate him in the way we, we suffer, in the way we deal with injustice, in the way we deal with the brokenness and the injustice that we experience in this world. And not only that, like Jesus, we can keep on entrusting ourselves to God. That's what he did. He entrusted himself to the righteous judge. Well, we do that as well. We entrust ourselves to, to God, to the Lord Jesus, who is our shepherd and our guardian and the righteous judge. And we do this in imitation of Jesus, who did this for us. So here, in 1 Peter chapter 2, the servants originally, but beyond that even more broadly, we find the pattern for dealing with injustice in Christ. We imitate him in the way we handle and experience and endure injustice.